no. No, 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 man. No, 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 no,
um, <laughs> just to double down sure. a little bit for <laughs> well i have it tattooed on my stomach like like tupac and there's yeah. enough room to say union thug life born union thug life bread and when there i die go. i will have had a lifetime of benefits uh because i am now union thug life dead <laughs> there's enough room to have all that in the same size font that tupac had on his belly so <laughs> uh, some of us choose the pension life and sometimes the pension life chooses us. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, so last week we talked about, uh, Tolkien, uh, with, uh, with Ed in particular. And this week we are talking about things that I'll be honest as a Southerner, I did not draw a connection to. So I'm excited to hear about, and that is professional wrestling and the lost cause narrative. So yes. Damien, why don't you give us a little bit of a uh, context and background for both of those things, and then we'll get to yeah. marrying them together. Absolutely. Well, so I'd just like to point out that last week we did the vulgar art of J.R.R. Tolkien, and now we're going to get into some highbrow stuff. Uh, with... <laughs> I know it's a joke. I hate so you so much right now. <laughs> Like, I, oh my god and nobody can see this but i get like one of these kids is doing his own thing vibes because everybody else puts their head down while i'm laughing <laughs> so it's just okay so um there's this little thing that happened it was called the civil war uh it killed uh almost as many people as COVID has um and uh it, it was uh essentially over uh states rights um to uh, own chattel slaves uh, and um, wait, wait, yeah. I, I want to I clarify something um, sure. uh, to own chattel slaves. When you say chattel slaves, you mean people. Yeah. Human beings, human uh, beings. kidnapped yeah, okay. from another place and yeah. or born into said slavery, hence the yeah. chattel aspect of yeah. it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There is one part of the country, a very sprawling part of the country. It was continuing to grow. Um, was that Connecticut? That yes, yes, Connecticut and <laughs> New Hampshire. That's why it was yeah. called the New Hampshire, uh, mm. because those people bore the mark of ham. And so <laughs> okay. they were creating the Shire. And it was <laughs> oh, oh, hey, hey, we're we're back to Calvinism. I didn't yes. know we were getting into <laughs> the mark the, of ham. I didn't know we were getting into the Southern Baptist Convention. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's a few pages down. Now <laughs> you're gonna try my lost cause, you kind of have to. It's not yeah. yeah we did this shit. over a five-episode arc uh on our podcast, and each one was roughly an hour and a half. So I'm gonna give you a real condensed version here. Uh, so essentially the civil war happened, turns out the entire constitution upon which the, the Southern states who tried to secede away from the, uh, the union, uh, was in fact based entirely around the idea of slavery because it was mostly word for word, but also like you can't make any laws against slavery. They lost. Um, it didn't mean that they liked black people any more than they had previously. Uh, they just realized, okay, well, you know, this, this is not a, a winnable thing. Um, and they were brought back into the union. There were three uh, amendments passed to kind of make things okay -er. Uh, there's the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, and the 15th Amendment. 13th uh, Amendment um, basically defined what is, it's been a while since I've taught U.S. history. Uh, 13th Amendment basically outlawed slavery. Uh, 14th except for <laughs> unless of course you're incarcerated uh so you know they they gave people a workaround it's good <laughs> you, know, you just want to bring yeah. yeah exactly you know sure yeah. who doesn't love a good loophole um but 14th amendment basically said hey if you were a traitor to the country you can't hold public office apparently we found loopholes around that um and then the 15th amendment said that black men could in fact vote uh and to ensure all this uh 
armies came down from the north to occupy or safeguard the rights of uh, people in the south so they could vote. Uh, and that went fine until there was an election in 1876. Uh, and you get to what's called the Compromise of 1877, wherein um, it was it was almost a Roman kind of thing. You pick the person in charge will pick the people who, you know, the, the pool from which you can do it. The Tilden Hayes Compromise, which essentially removed federal troops and allowed Jim Crow South to reign. Into this vacuum also came a group called the Daughters of the American Confederacy, the of the Confederacy, pardon me. The UDC. Um, yeah. Um, and they essentially said, well, um, we need to teach people that we weren't wrong. And... <laughs> Well, that's a that's a really, really good way of condensing it down to its absolute essential core. Yeah. 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 So so they did that um, and they put a lot of effort and, and a lot of statues up uh, to do that and a lot of effort into the the, the textbooks uh, because mm-hmm. public schooling was starting to be a thing. Um, and they essentially controlled the narrative. And you have this narrative of essentially um, slave. We can all agree that slavery was bad. Uh, to what extent, I guess, is an argument you can have at, at different dinner tables, but we can all agree that slavery was bad, our mistake. Um, but to be honest, the Civil War was, we were very valiant at protecting our honor. And that's the core of the lost cause. It was, they were fighting. Yes, they were fighting a cause that was wrong, but the way they fought is really, really the story here. So we're going to focus on their courage. It combines also in that vein of the courageous, this idea of, yes, we were wrong, but also we were fighting a tyrannical government that was not respecting our political agency, Mm -hmm. which is bullshit. But yeah, Yeah, and it was called the the war of northern aggression. I went to school in Florida for a part, and it was called the war between states there. Uh, Mm -hmm. There was also the war for southern independence. There was the second American rebellion. I'd heard it called by my teachers Mm. uh, in in middle school. Um, now, interestingly, there were some rank amateurs who called it the Civil War. Um, there's a guy named Jefferson Davis, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, Robert E. Lee, William T. Sherman, P.T. Beauregard, Nathan Bedford Forrest, Abraham Lincoln. Never heard These of them. clowns. Yeah, I, nobody yeah, would have. Yeah, they're <laughs> unimportant footnotes. Yeah. Footnotes exactly. to yeah, the like, historical narrative. Yeah, like Andy in a Toy Story, right? Just yeah. a footnote. Um, <laughs> you ever heard of Plato? Socrates, (laughs) morons. (laughs) So the lost cause really focused on the how the war was fought, not the why. Uh, And you could construct a mythos around that because there, of course, were instances, obviously on both sides, but there for the South, there were instances, plenty of instances of courage, of personal courage that you could go to. And nobody's going to speak up about cowardly Uncle Jim. But they will all speak up about, you know, brave Uncle Cletus. Um, and and I'm just pulling names out of a hat there. But like it might be a little bit biased against my my teacher from sixth grade. He was a terrible PE teacher. Okay. Um, he had us run around the the, the cemetery. This it goes was back weird. to I have a running uh, socio, uh, uh, sociological theory that we're all at any point in our life just working through middle school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And as a high school teacher can confirm. Uh, oh, so. I'm I'm sorry. Did I mention at the beginning of the episode what level I teach at? Yeah, uh, you're literally yeah. working yeah. through. I'm literally school. working through. Like, <laughs> but if you eliminate the why of the war, then you can make heroes out of any traitor. 
and that's 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 what the the daughters of the the of the confederacy did um and you could make it so that your neighbors and your own relatives were just misguided they weren't trying to wreck a country to keep other people in chains it's also so, worth noting that they capitalized on a vacuum of knowledge right so mm-hmm. um in particular with like uh the narratives of the enslaved so mm-hmm. In, I think it was FDR in his project to uh, recount or to capture the testimonies of the formerly enslaved and what their life was yes. like and that kind of thing. That doesn't come around until like the 1930s. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's part of the WPA. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it so it's decades, almost 50 years after the end of the war. And in that gap, you have you have the oral histories that were passed down from you know generation to generation. But those are largely within black communities. Right. Right. Uh, and so you have in that vacuum, the propagation of narratives like um, there, there's this old trope that made its way into textbooks because the United Dollars of Confederacy also did a lot to shape education. Right. Yes, like, you po- like you said, um, of like a sort of Uncle Tom kind of trope, but a old black formerly enslaved man who just spends his days by his former master's tombstone. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As opposed to what we understand now of like narratives from even sometimes like the slave masters uh, themselves or from the the enslaved of like there's one in particular that comes to mind where we from a uh, diary journal entry a slave master recounting the siege of his plantation and you know he's telling his uh his uh, uh enslaved folks y'all let's run for the forests right let's run to the tree line we can escape mm-hmm. and their response is sure you go ahead <laughs> and then he makes a note like and they didn't move. So I took <laughs> off with the assumption they were behind me. And then lo and behold, they were not right, <laughs> right? <laughs> to his utter shock and surprise. Oh yeah. And, well, yeah. Like how can you, you head think- about the point so hard that it flees from you? You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. And so you think about the disparity between those two narratives, mm-hmm. right. And mm-hmm. how the UDC uh, just, you know, flooded that vacuum with egregiously wrong information. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, the best part I thought about Alexander Stevens's speech, um, which was called the Cornerstone speech, was that he never stuck to it after the war was over. Mm. He fled from it. He absolutely tried to backpedal. He claimed ran, ran like a chicken with his head cut off just as. Yeah, as as far from it as he could. He said, no, no, it wasn't about slavery. It was about economics uh, because the North was attacking them for their use of black people as labor. (laughs) Again. Way to head about the what, point there, Alex. Hey, hey uh, Mr. Stevens, yeah. <laughs> if, if I may call you that, um, because what I'd like to call you is fuckface, but I'm going to try to be respectful here. <laughs> um, you <laughs> Didn't you in that speech say something about uh, white supremacy, literally using the phrase white supremacy is the cornerstone of our policy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Natural law. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Didn't you? Like, the, is that you? Yeah. One of the highlights of that speech is that he comes down on the founders of the Constitution as being too soft on slavery. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, oh, this is where we're at. And and so for that guy to turn around and be like, no, no, these were just two different constitutions. The whole war was just a disagreement over how to run a country. It was a culture clash <laughs> since the South has a culture of honor and the North has a culture of making money. Yeah. <laughs> Which absolutely echoed the Hamilton stuff between mm-hmm. Jefferson and Hamilton oh, as yeah. told by, I mean, that's mm-hmm. fan fiction. I mean, mm-hmm. so, but, yeah. <laughs> but um, it's that same kind of culture clash and that absolutely ties into professional wrestling because uh, so that's the lost cause. Is there more that we wanted to cover on that? 
Yeah, let's get into the professional wrestling. That's okay. good. So professional wrestling, again, this was like the, the meat of, of three and a half episodes. But essentially, professional wrestling starts in the United States shortly after the Civil War. Uh, it had gotten brought over different wrestling tactics and different wrestling cap- um, styles. Styles. Yeah, came over with different immigrant groups. And those immigrant groups would often be somewhat cloistered in their regiments, right? So you would have the Irish uh, volunteers of Vermont and volunteers, of course, in quotes, um, of Vermont. Uh, and they had their own uh, catch as catch can wrestling, or some of them had their own uh, collar and elbow wrestling or jacket and elbow wrestling. So, so you, when you, you beat see, me too, because I was, I was going to, yep. I was going to explain that. No, no, I was paying attention. Jack, elbow, collar and elbow. I remember collar and elbow. Yep. Okay. So when you see uh, wrestling lock up in in the current day, you see them, you know, lock up their arms and and that kind of thing. And of course, we all know that wrestling is contrived. It is, uh, I believe, Ed, you called it sparkly murder gymnastics. Yeah, I got that from a (laughs) webcomic somewhere, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Which I absolutely adore. Yeah. But, you know, the, and the thing about wrestling that I've always loved, it's always been a work. It's always been contrived uh, since it started making money. Um, do, you, and, do you want to explain the difference between a work and a shoot? Just because bit, that's gonna, okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's always been that. And I love that about our culture now because Rome had people actually fighting potentially to the death for entertainment. We have people pretending to do so. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that that I've just always really appreciated about us. But yeah, um, you had Irish volunteers. Um, s- their style was dominant amongst the Union soldiers. Um, and so it became the style. Oh, wow, I really like how you did that. Um, can you teach me? And it, it kind of it spread, it diffused. And of course, you add little um, different aspects of the local flair and the local style into it and, and things like that. Um, and, and what ends up happening is, and there's a whole story about how Lincoln actually was one of the first professional wrestlers. Cause you could actually do this for money back when it was called a shoot. Now shooting and, and working are carny terms. Um, and I mean that respectfully, I believe you mean carnival Americans. Yes. Carnival <laughs> Americans. Sorry. Americans of carnival heritage. Um, so you want to be people first. Uh, so <laughs> the lady with the beard, uh, so yeah. Uh, but the, the man fired from the cannon, uh, but, uh, (laughs) as trains were pulling everything West, you had towns popping up. And as a result, you had moving entertainment troops and you would have a wrestler and he was known as a hooker or a shooter. And what it basically meant was that he could really handle himself. And he was the one that you brought out. And you'd have a few other people and you say, anybody who wants to beat this guy, it's five bucks for you or whatever. You know, you pay to, to fight him. If you can last more than two minutes, we've all read ba- uh, Spider-Man. Um, and uh, he uh, he essentially, you know, if he beat your guy, then you would have him come out against the hooker or the shooter. And the hooker would know the proper moves and techniques to actually stop this guy. Now, if the local champion was so good, you'd offer him a job on your troop and on you would go. And, and it, so it, it absolutely followed the rail lines. Well, one place where rail lines were slower to grow was in the South. Um, some people would say that Sherman had something to do with that. I would say good. Damn right. Uh, so you, you have uh, the explosion, though, of westward, mi- westward migration. And that brings wrestling everywhere as an ent- entertainment form. And then you start to have the professionalization of it. 
and uh, the collar and elbow style really starts to work its way through the Midwest. Now, the majority of what I'm talking about actually is going to be mostly the Southern territories compared to the New York territory, because New York is a special place unto itself. Uh, the Southern territories um, are, their style is essentially this. There is always a bad guy who is the champion. If not always, 95% of the time, he is the champion. Mm -hmm. Now, he is one of three things usually. One, he is a bad guy because he's an aristocrat. Two, he's a bad guy because he is a northerner. Uh, three, he's a bad guy because he's a coward that anyone could beat, but he has enough people on his side that could just keep interfering with you. And he the, cheats. He always, so, well, he's a bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got carpetbaggers, uh, flamboyant Yankees, and um, cowardly unionists. Yeah. Or, or you have carpetbaggers. Uh, flamboyant Southerners who could have afforded to buy their way out of service. Because mm. uh, Ric Flair, depending on uh, when he was champion, was either from Minneapolis, Minnesota. So if he's mm. in Virginia, you know they're going to be pissed about that. Uh, <laughs> or if he's in the Mid-South territories, and by the way, the country is carved up into about 32 different territories. If he's in the Mid-South territories, he was from Charlotte, North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the the dark humor in all of this is no one knows where he was from because he was part of a, a orphanage uh, buying racket. babies. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, so and Ric Flair is absolutely the guy that everybody and and his strength as a wrestler in the seventies and in the eighties was absolutely to make everyone look like they were just about to beat him, and yeah. then he would find some way to cheat and win. And he had a stable of guys, the Four Horsemen. Uh, were with him. You had Arn Anderson, Ole Anderson, both also known as the Minnesota Wrecking Crew, and Tully Blanchard, who was a Texan. Um, and all and Tully was this great. They, they call him Chicken Shit Heels. So this great guy who was very technically mm -hmm. uh, adept, but he would find ways to just look cowardly as he's doing it. So in the South, you would have this heel champion, almost always Ric Flair in the 70s and 80s. But even prior to that, you almost always had a heel champion. And he would go from town to town, making your, your local territory guy look like a million bucks. Well, the local territory guy was almost always um, a uh, what we call a white bread baby face. So he's almost always, well, he's almost always a white guy. Um, and he's almost uh, very often blonde. I don't know what it was that was in the water mm -hmm. in the 70s. Uh, in 80s, but he was almost always blonde. Side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Not enough lithium. Um, but uh, <laughs> he was, um, so he was almost always uh, white and almost always blonde, and he almost always lost. But that wasn't the point of the story. The point of the story was how he worked his way through Arn Anderson, how he worked his way through Barry Windham, unless he was Barry Windham, how he worked his way through uh, Ole Anderson, how he worked his way through uh, Tully Blanchard, how he finally got to Ric Flair and he won, but then the referee reversed the decision on a technicality. Dusty Rhodes was famous for this. This was called a dusty finish, actually. Uh, and Dusty Rhodes completely understood uh, Southern wrestling and he would always book it where the audience would leave having rioted at the fact that their champion lost. And when I mean rioted, I mean actually rioted. Like there were times where Ric Flair was in fear for his life. And that's not him telling tall tales. That's other people this, confirming said tales. 
this reminds me of a story of um and what you're saying about rick flair uh, tracks for a couple reasons and, and one is because of a story that i remember hearing from like a friend of a family mm-hmm. um it was it was a friend of a family whose cousin who i knew mm-hmm. uh went to a uh, wrestling show and rick flair was there mm-hmm. and because the it is theater it, and it is theater Absolutely. that is very engrossing and mm-hmm. uh this friend of the this uh this cousin was um uh under the influence and had a knife <laughs> And made yep. a go at Ric Flair. <laughs> yep. That was considered a compliment, by the way, for heels. Like heels will brag about how many of their cars have been burned out. Mm-hmm. And that's why they would actually find themselves a local ring rat, which is what's uh, a, a very derogatory term for a woman who is a groupie to wrestling, uh, mm-hmm. who is a super fan, as it were, because rat stood for reasonably attractive talent. Uh, Ooh, I thought that phrase couldn't get grosser. No, um, no, it's bad. It's real yeah. bad. Um, and especially in Tennessee. Um, but uh, like just the way they the, like it was part of the economic plan of the booker of the territory was, mm-hmm. well, I'm going to pay you less because you're going to find a rat. Uh, <laughs> it was it was bad. Oh, no. So yeah, the way I, that you Rick left Flair... that out in our. <laughs> I don't think you mentioned that. Did... Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah, it was, okay. it was bad. It was bad. Ugh. But so, yeah, Rick, Rick Flair epitomizes this bad guy, this heel. Um, But there were others. And if you look into wrestling in the 1990s, uh, you have the NWO, which you probably have some living memory of. Um, The NWO started off with Hulk Hogan, Kevin Nash, and Scott Hall. May he rest in peace, finally. Um, But the the three of them coming down to WCW, world-class wrestling, and taking over WCW and being interlopers. And the only reason that it worked so well was because Hulk Hogan had already come down and he's Hulk Hogan, right? Everybody Mm -hmm. cheers him, except he'd gotten stale because in a Southern territory, you don't have a face as your top attraction. You have a heel as your top attraction. And they got tired of this guy who always wins. Where's the story in that? Where's the cultural buy-in in that? This is the South. We don't win. It's how we fight that matters. So you flip the script. Hulk Hogan trades in his yellow and and red for his black and white. And suddenly you have this whole wave of people who came down from the New York territory, this union uh, interlopers, Hmm. creating their own occupation of the South. And now it's about Sting uh, going back to J.R.R. Tolkien. But no, it's about Sting, <laughs> who literally is coming from the rafters. Mm-hmm. He's a, he's descending from the heavens to mm-hmm. rescue everyone after about 18 months of NWO occupation. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, there were several other wrestlers who put up a good fight against NWO, but ultimately lost. But that made their careers because they didn't have to win. It's not about winning in Southern mm-hmm. wrestling. It's absolutely about how you do it. That's interesting because so um, uh, a good friend of mine from high school is a uh, or was for a long time. I think he's maybe since retired, but he was a independent wrestler right on the independent oh. circuit uh, around where I am. And he was I mean, he's, you know, dad in the wool southerner, but uh, his character was um, basically Andrew Dice Clay. Like, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. So he was, you know, modeled right after him. And he was always, he was always the heel. He was usually the headliner. And yeah, now that I think about it, like 
it was less about seeing when he did lose, it was less about saying the triumph of the champion. It was more about the fall of this character. Uh, and he didn't lose often, at least not in the right. shows that I saw. Um, so that's, that's an interesting way then of sort of, um, I guess, post-war catharsis for, mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. and for people who, I don't know how many folks who listen to this are from the South, but if you're not, you should know, we still call you Yankees. Mm-hmm. Um, we still <laughs> refer to y'all as such. And I try not to, but from time to time, <laughs> you know, um, and so, uh, so that, that mindset is still very much there. And that, that mm-hmm. sense of divide is still very much there. Um, not maybe as, as prominent as it was, you know, in, in, you know, even my my parents' generation or the or generation before, but it doesn't really leave. Right. It's 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 baked into the culture. And yeah. what I didn't really cover was the bloodletting that would happen along that journey. As mm-hmm. the feud would intensify, as Magnum TA would be going at it with Tully Blanchard, as Sting or Barry Windham or Dusty Rhodes, especially, they would bleed and bleed and bleed. And it was not it was not irregular to leave the face bleeding in the middle of the ring by the end of the uh, the night um, to have your blow off feud. And that's when you'd bring in the cage. And that's when you'd bring in all these other things uh, because you're amping up the emotionality and you're amping up the essentially like the 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 narrative of we have been bled we have mm-hmm. been victimized and it doesn't matter if we win. It matters that we fought with honor. It well, is. It, it's almost like sacrifice by effigy. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And, and kind of what I want to bring in here at this point is because uh, it's one of the things that, that came up in our podcast about this is um, there is a very strong um, charismatic Southern Baptist religious kind of aspect to this that you know, um, the, the, the cultural differences in, in, you know, religion between the North and the South, you know, uh, in, in Northern Presbyterian mainline Protestantism, you know, you went to church and church reaffirmed, you know, the social order and, and, you know, we all sang hymns and yay in, in the South, you had, you know, traveling revival tents Mm -hmm. and you had, this religious experience that was built entirely around this powerful moment of catharsis and spiritual bloodletting because of the subconscious guilt, everybody was carrying from slavery being such a central part of life and the, and the trauma that was being inflicted on everybody on a consistent basis Mm -hmm. because of that. Um, And so the, the bloodletting in the ring mirrors that same level of intense uh you know raising the emotional stakes and raising the emotional stakes in that kind of way and having this intense cathartic kind of experience whereas in whereas in the north because we haven't we haven't talked about that that storyline at all but i think the contrast is is illustrative in the north you know um the the bad guy would rise up in rebellion Mm-hmm. You know, the bad guy would be an interloper who'd be showing up and, you know, breaking all the rules and violating the social contract. Mm-hmm. And the champion would come along and knock him off his peg and restore order. Exactly. It was a it was a face territory in the north, speci- specifically in the WWF, then WWE. But what I wanted to come back to was that once the Monday Night Wars got started and you had Hulk Hogan as a bad guy in the south, 
you also had this this nationalization of these culture wars that were brought about by guys like Newt Gingrich and and uh, Pat Buchanan, mm-hmm. and the result was in New York they were losing to the South. So what they did was they took a Texan badass who was pretty much no nonsense and he will stomp a mud hole in you. And they put him against the boss, the guy in charge of everything. And he would win, but he would win uh, at just the very last moment. He would find a way to pull out the victory. Now he was an anti-hero. Now he was ultimately a good guy, but he was an anti-hero and he wrestled as a bad guy. He wrestled as a heel the whole time. Heel tactics, punch, punch, stomp, stomp, uh, kick in the groin. Um, but he was cheered because he's going against a, a more evil corporate boss. Mm-hmm. And Stone Cold Steve Austin becomes this. Uh, he becomes the most white hot baby face there has ever been in wrestling. And what I loved is that the success of the WWF was its adoption of the Southern strategy. Uh, when it came to wrestling. Um, and that's what nationalized out to us. And that's what became this national thing. And and we all suffered for it, ultimately. But And and most of Stone Cold Steve Austin's matches absolutely had people in blood um, in the late 90s. But that whole Attitude Era was 100% an adoption of the defiance uh, of the South and the honor that you're fighting for. So it doesn't even matter your tactics if you're fighting for the right thing. More importantly, if you're fighting against an enormous monster who has all the power. Mm-hmm. And so that's what became, and it still is today. I mean, they still run those storylines over and over again. Daniel Bryan versus the McMahon, uh, the McMahons and uh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley in 2015, 2016, those times. Um, you still have that. So two things came to mind that, sure. um, as you were saying that. And one, I think that's an awesome connection. Uh, but um, whenever I think of Stone Cold Steve Austin, I can't help but think of him in some movie. It might have might have been The Replacements, where he's mm-hmm. a football player. Oh, and the longest yard. The, uh, it's uh, but he's in a um, a locker room, and there's Mississippi Queen by Mountain playing, and uh-huh. he's like, "This is how the white man plays guitar," and it's just a single line that's thrown out there, and I don't know what purpose it serves other than just to see him say that and then air play air guitar. And so every time I think of Steve Austin, that's that's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, but, but that's an interesting that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that as as far as yeah, Stone Cold was was an antihero. He was a Frank Castle of a sort. Mm-hmm. But the second thing that came to mind was that this idea of the suffering and the bloodletting and the sort of sacrifice and the scapegoating in some regards is interesting because um, so the South has a, a lot to, the the white American Southern population has a lot to resent for Reconstruction mm-hmm. you know martial law is not pleasant for anybody no. but Reconstruction was also a time of boom for the African American uh, community for a lot of you know black communities um, it's you know you have a population that is still terribly terrorized and murdered and, and you can't downplay that at all um, they were also some of the few skilled labor um in the area and were in some cases able to you know build up a fair amount of wealth and political Mm -hmm. power and we start to see like you know black senators and congressmen and state legislators and things like that in the south during reconstruction and in 1898 uh wilmington north carolina was the most um it was the largest and most uh and wealthiest uh hub uh, trade of hub i'm sorry hub trade what am i trying to say here A hub, hub of, of trade. trade hub of trade my words have failed me um 
hub of trade in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And then in 1898, we there's the coup, right, where uh, the fusion government of uh, white politicians and black politicians take this, the the um, the uh, the city uh, uh, government, and then the coup respond. Uh, the coup is from racist white folk who are not okay with that. And so they overthrow it literally in the span of 24 hours. And, you know, there's right. folks that are killed and hundreds of run out of town and all that kind of stuff. But the other thing is, and the reason this connects to the bloodletting is that the, the series of uh, domestic terrorism events that happened across the South post reconstruction, mm-hmm. were absolutely shooting ourselves in the foot because um, we benefited from there's no way we wouldn't have benefited from like all of the economic advancements, all mm-hmm. of the uh, educational advancements, all the things that, you know, the African-American uh, and larger black community was bringing in and, and, um, and, you know, helping to sort of revitalize the South, mm-hmm. if nothing else, like if there is a bunch of wealthy, you know, black store owners and I have a place to go shop, right. That is helping me. Or if I have a place to work or things like that. And the, the destruction of those places brought everybody down. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it is sort of this, this fascination with grief, uh, and, and self-harm in many ways, I Aggrievement guess. In some, yeah. 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 On yeah, some yeah. Level. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I would say in a wrestling perspective, uh, there were plenty of times where a good guy would be offered a place in the bad guy's stable as a way of making sure the, the head bad guy didn't have to fight him and he would turn it down, even though it's clearly a good offer materially. You know, but he turn it down because honor demands it. Yeah. And, and Stone Cold Steve Austin had an episode where right after he beat Shawn Michaels, the night after uh, WrestleMania 14, uh, Vince McMahon hands him a, a new title. Um, and he I think he uh, Steve Austin, I think he uh, comes down a couple weeks later wearing a suit and tie. And he says, you know, I want you to see this because it's the last damn time. And he takes it off and kicks McMahon in the chones and then stuns him and walks off. Uh, and he takes his own title, his own like snake belt title, uh, which was that was another thing, you know, and it's just this even though you're being offered a very good deal and you can go along to get along here. Look how villainized that is culturally mm-hmm. uh, in the world of professional wrestling at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also worth noting that Stone Cold Steve Austin also once uh Stone Cold stunnered the 45th president of the United States. But yeah, yeah, that's a that's a story great, for another day. Great oh, moments my. in history. Right. <laughs> so as we pull this to a close, um, is there uh, or where can folks find you? How can they support you and all your you know glory? All right. Well, our podcast, as uh, I mentioned, the top of every, if we mentioned it, the top of everything is a geek history of time. Uh, we can be found on the Apple Podcast app and on Stitcher. Uh, and if you want to bypass subscribing to anything or, or signing up for any apps, you can just go online to www.geekhistorytime.com. And that's where all of our work will be found. Um, and uh, I personally can be found at EH Blaylock on Twitter and as Mr. Underscore Blaylock on TikTok. You can find me uh, at Duh Harmony on the Twitter and the Instagram. Uh, if you live in the California area, I do live shows when the pandemic allows it. Uh, you can always look up Capitol, C-A-P-I-T-O-L, Punishment, uh, for our pun tournament to find dates on that. Uh, and you can find me also on TikTok at Duh Harmony one uh, Or you can just look for the, the hashtag HowITortureEd. 
uh, and you'll find most of what we do there. All right. And of course, folks can find me on TikTok at Dr. Dot underscore C and on Twitter and Instagram at GA Cruz underscore PhD. And um, you can uh, email, you know, any sort of uh, questions, comments, concerns, requests for subject matter uh, to GA Cruz PhD at gmail.com. All right, folks, thanks for coming by the office and uh, we'll catch you next week.